Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. There used to be, in some sense, in most churches, that the sanctuary was a holy place. There were unwritten rules because of that about what you could or could not do within the walls of the church, at least the sanctuary portion of the church. There was just something about the building, the purpose for that building, something about the architecture, perhaps something about the pulpit being front and center in most churches. All of these things, and I'm sure tradition as well, combined to say that a person had to act differently and talk differently within these walls because this was God's holy temple. It still is that way in many European cathedrals. Even if you go there now during the week as a tourist, Even though many of them have now become attractions rather than genuine places of worship, you walk into them and they have those tall spires pointing to the heavens, symbolically declaring that there is one who is over and above us. The ornate carvings and the beautiful stained glass windows reminding us that God cares about beauty and aesthetics and that God cares about detail, that nothing escapes his attention. As a result, even now, when you walk into one of those cathedrals, again, even during the week, there is a difference. People act differently. They talk differently. You don't go in there and hear shouting. You hear whispering if you hear talking at all. There is no running and playing inside of those places. These are quiet places of reflection. Yes, people might be snapping pictures, but they do so without flash. In mosques, there might be even more rules. Rules like taking your shoes off before you enter or for the women to cover their heads. You might, in fact, not even be allowed in if you are not dressed appropriately. All of these places, whether the true worship of God is taking place in them or not, all of them have the same idea. There is a belief that God is present in a special way, and therefore people act differently. This morning we continue our series entitled Divine Design. Again, we are doing this series so that we can hear what God says about us, so that we are not living our lives based on what someone else says or what we ourselves say or whether we have any idea or not of who we are. We are doing this because we want to hear what God says we are. And we started by being reminded that we are image bearers, that God created us in his image. But of course, we saw that that image has been marred by sin. And as a result, last week, we looked at the fact that for believers, we are now new creations, that God has recreated and remade us into the image of Christ. Today, I want to talk about a holy place, a place where God dwells in a special way. And as a result, we are to act and to speak differently. 
But the place I'm talking about is not a church sanctuary. It is not even a building at all. It is instead you, your physical being, your body. We, of course, are not going to talk about the body in the way that is commonly talked about. We're not going to be talking about outward beauty or weight loss plans. We're not even going to be talking about the proper way to care for the body that God has given us, but we are going to be talking about your body. And if you are a believer, this text tells us that your body is the place where God dwells. And as a result, you are called, equipped, and commanded, and expected to live differently than those who cannot say that God dwells within. To do that, we are going to look at the verses that immediately follow the verses we looked at last week. A passage that many believe is one of the most important New Testament passages concerning our view of the human body. So today in this divine design series, we are going to see that you are a holy temple. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 12, and we'll go down to verse 20. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. All things are lawful for me. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are brought with a price, so glorify God in your body. The first thing we want to talk about this morning is the idea that the physical is immaterial. Now, you need to understand, and this may be the first time I've done this in a sermon, that that point is not true. That point is not my point. But that is, you say, well, why is that your point then? Because that is what Paul is arguing against in this text. The Corinthian believers, some of them were making the case that the physical is immaterial. And that is his whole argument in this case. So every other point this morning, and I might as well prepare you, there are five points today. All of the other four are going to contradict the one I just gave you. But we need to start with that because that is what Paul is dealing with. And frankly, it is still a major issue in our own day. Maybe not so much people saying that, but certainly people living it out as evidenced by their life. Now, I mentioned briefly last week that the city of Corinth was well known for its sexual immorality. There were other vices as well, but they were well known for that. 
and that Paul has already dealt with a specific case in chapter 5 that was within the church. And then last week we saw it multiple times in that list of sins. There were three or four of them that had to do with this broader category of sexual immorality. And then Paul says, and such were some of you. And so in the section we are dealing with this morning, it is the same issue. But he deals with it in a much more theological manner. Because Paul understood that theology and ethics go hand in hand. That is that what we believe does play out in how we live our lives, and therefore it is important to know why we believe and what we believe. And so the issue of sexual immorality is not just a moral issue. It is a spiritual issue. It is a gospel issue. Now, I don't normally highlight punctuation in my sermons because I don't want to give you a grammar lesson. Furthermore, I'm not very good at grammar myself. And grammar lessons are, for most of us, rather boring. But grammar is important in this text. So if you look at your Bibles, you need to see this. You see there in verse 12 that there is a phrase that's listed twice there. All things are lawful for me. And then in verse 13, there is a phrase that says, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Well, what's the grammar lesson? Do you notice that all three of those phrases are in quotation marks? Now, we have to acknowledge that Paul did not use quotation marks. They weren't invented then. That is inserted there by our interpreters, by our translators, to help us understand what Paul is talking about. And so those quotation marks tell us that in all likelihood, these are not Paul's words. These are slogans, these are sayings of the Corinthians, and Paul is stating what they are saying, and then he is arguing against it. He is replying to what it is that they believe. That being the case, it is clear that some were contending that the physical body didn't matter, and therefore it didn't matter what they did with that body. Since they now have the spirit, they have moved to a higher plane and so what takes place in the body or with the body is insignificant. This also helps explain the food comment, which otherwise seems to be rather out of place here. He is using that as an example because they no longer now have to follow the Old Testament dietary laws. Those laws were now irrelevant because it's just food for the stomach. And they were taking that philosophy and they were applying it to the other aspects of the body. If food is just for the stomach and it does not matter, all functions of the body are equally alike, therefore we can do whatever we want to with the sexual activity of our body. So you need to understand that Paul is not saying that all things are lawful. He has already said in the verses that we looked at last week that that was what you used to be. And so he is implying certainly that they are not to live like that now. And in this text, he is clearly going to condemn sexual immorality. So he is not saying all things are lawful. He is quoting what they are saying, and then he is replying to it. He is trying to take what they believe and teach truth from it. They were employing these arguments to get around the truth, to try and justify their sin and conclude that what they did with the body was immaterial. It did not matter. They were doing this by using these statements. The body is just the body, a container for the spirit, which will ultimately be destroyed. Or so they thought. 
And so the rest of the passage is going to argue against that. So if you're taking notes, you do need to make some sort of comment there in your notes that this is not an accurate statement. It is point number one, the physical is immaterial, but that's not what we believe and that's not what Paul's arguing. That's what they believed. So secondly, we need to talk about the fact that the physical is eternal. So now Paul begins his argument against the immateriality of the physical and he begins by saying, no, the physical is eternal. Now, when you think about this particular realm of conversation, either for yourself or for your children, that when you have that talk with them about trying to avoid sexual sins, what are the arguments that instinctively come to your mind? Well, we normally think about the consequences, and so we teach them about the possibility of diseases or certainly of unwanted pregnancies. Or we discuss the emotional or relational damage that can occur when you're so close to someone in that way only to be discarded later. And the consequences that can come for future relationships, especially for a future spouse in this case. If we're thinking about us as adults, we know that sexual sins can destroy marriages. It can divide homes. It can scar children for years to come. And there are certainly many reasons why confining the sexual relationship to a marriage is wise, even for an unbeliever. But Paul does not go to any of those arguments, but rather he presents a theological argument that is one of the foundations of our faith. Now, I've never used this text as my Easter sermon and probably never will, but he goes to Easter, doesn't he? He starts talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because remember, they're claiming that the body doesn't matter because it will simply be destroyed. And Paul's counterpunch to that is, no, it's not going to be destroyed because Christ is alive. We are destined for resurrection. The body is not destined for destruction as they imagined. It is destined for resurrection because Jesus died and rose again. So those who are in Christ will also be resurrected. Redemption Salvation is not a partial conversion. God redeems all of us. That is why in the Apostles' Creed, we specifically say, I believe in the resurrection of the body. That is why at Easter, we are adamant about the physical resurrection of Jesus. It is not just that he appeared to rise again. It was not a spirit resurrection, it was a physical resurrection where his body came back to life. And likewise, the same is to happen to us. Now, none of this means that we ought to overemphasize the physical body because we know it certainly does gradually deteriorate. Paul acknowledged in another text that bodily exercise is of some profit, but he compares that to godliness and says godliness is a far greater gain. But their problem was not overemphasizing the physical, their problem was underemphasizing it. Something that you might conclude doesn't really happen anymore. But while it may not be a theological system or it may not be articulated, the way people treat the body these days, especially in the sexual realm, certainly does say the same thing. Our testimony or our lifestyle is testifying to the fact that many people agree with the Corinthians that the physical is immaterial, and yet the Bible clearly says the opposite. The physical is eternal. 
Our third point, as Paul continues to make this theological argument in verses 15 through 17, is that the physical is united. He makes his case both positively and negatively, and we will start with the positive. We did a series some years ago, it was a very brief series, but we did a series on union with Christ. Because Paul so often uses that phrase, we are in Christ. And so we talked about what it means that believers are united with Christ, though if my memory is correct, we did not talk about the physical aspect as Paul is dealing with here. He says, we are members together with him. And then verse 17 says, we are one spirit with him. Now you understand that this is not a literal joining of bodies because we know that Christ is not physically present with us in this life, which is why I think he adds that in verse 17, that we are one spirit with him. But it is a real union nevertheless, a real union that has radical implications on how we live our lives. And this speaks once again of the totality of our salvation, that we are united with Christ in all aspects, not just some. Therefore, we cannot separate parts of our lives and say those are the spiritual parts, and in those areas, we will follow Christ, and in other parts, they are reserved for our own pleasure. We cannot be a house divided when it comes to our following of Christ, that it is all or it is nothing, because Christ redeems every aspect of us, which includes the physical. Now, the negative aspect returns to the main topic. And the main topic is, of course, sexual immorality. And though a specific example is given, I want you to understand that the same applies to any kind of sexual immorality, not just the one specific example he gives. Now, it's a logical argument, as Paul's often are, though it is not the argument we tend to think about, certainly not in the heat of the moment. Paul says this, Shall I take my body, which is united to Christ, and then unite that same body with a prostitute? Now again, let me be very clear here, because it is easy to shrug this off given our current definition of what a prostitute is. And so we could say, well, I've never done that, and so this doesn't apply to me. But again, this is a broader argument that deals with, in a general way, any kind of sexual immorality, which our definition from the Bible is anything outside of the marriage relationship. And so he says, if I were to do that, take my body that is united to Christ, and then unite it in sexual immorality, am I not uniting Christ to a prostitute? Is not that what Paul is saying is happening? Now, you might be thinking to yourself, I can't believe he just suggested that. Isn't that blasphemous to say that Christ would be united to a prostitute in this way? And if that is your thought, I think you're on the right track. Because I think that's exactly the shock and reaction that Paul is going for. Look at the last word in verse 15. In our English translations, most of ours, I'm sure, it's simply the word never. But in the original, it is the strongest negative that the Greek language has. This should never be. This is unthinkable. This is unimaginable. 
Something that not only should no Christian ever ponder, much less actually participate in. Now let me just say at this point, since I use the word blasphemy, the sexual immorality is not the unpardonable sin. This has come up in conversations I've had with multiple people over the last few weeks, not in the context of sexual immorality, but the question about the unpardonable sin. And so I realize it is an issue that people are struggling with. But you remember last week, those verses, verse 9 and 10, those lists of sins where Paul then uses that beautiful phrase, but such were some of you. They had sexual immorality in a multitude of ways in their past, but Paul acknowledges that they've now been forgiven of it. Well, but you argue that that was before they were believers. What if I commit something like this after I've become a believer, is there any hope of being forgiven in that case? And the answer is still yes. The forgiveness of God for his children extends to all of our sins. There is no sin too great that God cannot and will not forgive you. The unpardonable sin is a rejection of the Holy Spirit of God and his offer of salvation, which is why it is unpardonable. Because there is no other avenue for salvation. There is no other means by which we could be saved. So if we reject that, then we are unsaved. And there's nothing that can be done. Because there is no other way to be right with God. So Paul is indeed making a strong case that sexual immorality is a serious sin. And his argument is not over. But I do want you to know that there is forgiveness in Christ whether you committed that sin prior to faith in Christ or whether you did so after conversion. And so he continues the case like a good prosecuting attorney with evidence from the past, a quote from the very foundation of human creation, the very beginning of the marriage relationship where husband and wife are said to become one flesh. This mystical union that transcends the physical. It certainly includes the physical, but it goes well beyond that as two people are united together. And so Paul says that applies to the sexual relationship in general because intimacy like that, connecting two people, is very difficult to put into words. So this is another reminder that it's not just sex. As many people want to claim it is. It can never be just that. Because it unites two people together in a way that transcends the physical only. And so Paul is not done with his argument, and therefore neither are we. In fact, he hasn't even gotten to the main argument yet, the argument that makes this a part of this series. I mean, so far, everything I've said doesn't really make this a part of a series on divine design. But this next statement certainly does, and it will seem at first like a paradox, The physical is spiritual. For the believer, the body is not just the body. It is the very dwelling place of God. Verse 19 is where we get our title for today. Verse 19 is the reason why this this text is in this series. And again, it is something that applies to every believer, but only to believers. That you are a holy temple. Now, again, I want to call your attention, though there are not quotations here in most verses or most versions, 
But there is the possibility of another Corinthian slogan here in this verse. Every sin a person commits is outside the body. Now, I realize that our English translations use the word other, every other sin a person commits. But the word other is not in the original translation or not in the original words. It's just written there for our benefit. If this is another slogan, Paul then states it and gives the exception. Every sin is outside the body except the one that we're dealing with here. In this case, the words every and all retain their usual meaning. And again, it would be their claim that it's just outside the body. It doesn't matter. But he's saying, no, that might be true of a lot of other sins, but it is not true of this one. If, there is, if this is not a Corinthian slogan, again, we don't know for certain, that's why the word other is added. Either way, the idea is the same. There is indeed something unique about sexual sin, not only in its power to unite two individuals together, but also in its power to destroy. Now, we don't know exactly what Paul is referring to when he talks about the consequences. It certainly could be the potential physical diseases that were possible both then and now. It could also be the emotional or relational or even spiritual impact, or it certainly could be all of the above. But regardless, Paul is making it very clear he is singling out this particular sin, and he is saying it is especially problematic for the people involved. Now, this brings up a question that I know our life group talked about uh, briefly last week, and perhaps yours did as well, based on some comments that the author made in uh, the chapters that we were looking at last week. Are there degrees of sin? Actually, it's the week before last for most of you. We had life group last week. Most of you did not because we were a week behind. That's immaterial. But in those chapters, the author made some statements about sin. And so we began a brief discussion about are there degrees of sin or is a sin a sin? That is, are there some sins that are bigger sins or are all sins sins? And the answer is actually yes. Both of those things are in some sense true. In one sense, a sin is a sin. It is all a sin against a holy God and separates us from God and demands that we be forgiven by God. But at the same time, we understand that there are some sins that are more serious and therefore they have greater consequences. Not that they cannot be forgiven. Again, I said that a moment ago, any sin can be forgiven, but certainly there are some sins that have greater consequences in our lives. We know this from our own legal system where crimes are categorized in various ways and penalties are given out accordingly. There are simply certain crimes that are more heinous than others, and as a result, they deserve greater consequences. And that is what Paul is saying here. And he's doing it in an effort to warn us about the consequences. And in so doing, he tells us about the serious nature of this particular kind of sin. But ultimately, the serious nature stems not from the consequences that follow, but from who you are. And again, that's why it's in this series. You are a holy place because the Spirit of God dwells within you, and therefore you are a holy temple. And as such, you have no business being involved in sexual immorality simply because it's not who you are. Again, there's a connection here between theology and ethics or morality. Once we understand who we are because of Christ, it should drastically change how we live. 
they thought the fact that they had the Spirit meant the negation of the body. It wasn't important. But Paul says the exact opposite. Because you do have the Spirit within your body, you are a holy place because that is who God made you. You are a holy temple, and that temple is no place for sexual sins. Which leads us, though we have to back up in our text to get to it, one of the main action points or commands of this particular section. Flee from sexual immorality, he says. Now, if he were speaking, I think that point would have been emphasized. If he were writing an email like some of you do, and you like to use all caps to make sure the recipient of your email doesn't miss a particular word or point, this would be the, the place where it's in all caps. Flee from sexual immorality. This is not something to be treated as trivial. This is not an area of our lives where we should get as close as we can without going over the edge. We are to get away from it as quickly and uh, as far as possible. Like running from a burning building or escaping from some other kind of tragedy. Joseph, of course, is the prime example of doing this physically. You probably know that story from the book of Genesis where he's in Potiphar's house and Potiphar's wife is coming on to him repeatedly and she finally grabs hold of him and urges him and he runs out leaving his jacket behind. He's the prime example of fleeing from this kind of sin. But of course, we also need to understand that fleeing is not just running in the heat of the moment. Wisdom demands that we set up safeguards so that the heat of the moment never arises. Billy Graham was well known for a rule that he followed, so much so that it became known as the Billy Graham rule. He made a commitment that he would never be alone with a member of the opposite sex who was not his wife. Now, in modern days, that rule has been scoffed at. It has been ridiculed. It has been called sexist or antiquated and other derogatory terms. But the truth is very simple. You cannot commit sexual immorality, at least not physically, if you're never alone with a member of the opposite sex, who, of course, is not your spouse. Now, I don't follow that rule to the letter, I'll be honest. I do go into the homes of widows when I make visits. But I do try to follow the general principle there. And if for some reason I can't, I'm very quick to tell my wife what I've done and why, who I've been and where, so that she doesn't hear from someone else that they might have seen me alone with someone else. I realize this is much harder for some of you in business than it is in the church, especially when you have to travel for your job, and that's all the more reason to have even more safeguards. So fleeing sexual immorality involves guarding your heart and mind, not putting yourself in tempting situations. It involves guarding our eyes so that we are careful with what we allow ourselves to see, which of course is extremely difficult in our day with the internet, but it is certainly not impossible. Job famously said that he had made a covenant with his eyes so that he would not look upon certain things. And many of us need to follow Job's example and follow suit. The paths we might need to travel to obey this command to flee sexual immorality might be many and diverse, even as the temptations themselves are, but the goal is the same. 
to put aside any kind of sin in this area of our lives. Not just so that we might avoid the consequences which are to follow, but more importantly, because we are a holy temple. The Spirit of God dwells within each of us who are believers, which makes the physical spiritual. Well, one more piece of the argument that Paul gives us in the last verse, the physical is purchased. The last verse clearly tells us to glorify God with our bodies, something we are told to do elsewhere in every area of our life, but the reason here is what I want to focus again on. And the reason is because your body does not belong to you. So ultimately, you do not have the final say over what is appropriate and what is not. Now, I realize that that is not going to sit well with some people. That is not well received in our day. In another hot-button topic that has gone on for several decades now, one of the arguments has always been, it's my body. My body, my choice. Not a Corinthian slogan, but an American slogan. My body, my choice. No one has a right to tell me what to do with my body. But since God created our bodies, he does. Furthermore, since I'm talking to believers, not only did God create your bodies, but God has remade or recreated you, as we've talked about, in his image, into the likeness of his son, doing that at the death of his son, who paid the penalty for our sins, satisfying the wrath of God in our place, so we are purchased by the blood of Christ. You no longer belong to you. Therefore, God not only has a right, God has a double right to say what you can and can't do with your body. And furthermore, he makes these statements for our own good. This is not designed to punish us or to keep us away from fun. So as believers, we need to take out of our vocabulary all of those statements that talk about the right to do whatever we want to do. It's my life. You only live once. Do whatever makes you happy. None of these and other sayings like them apply to believers. Because he has purchased our lives, therefore we belong to him. So glorify God with all that we do, which includes what we do or don't do with our bodies. I love how Paul in this whole text takes a problem that was going on in his day, a problem that continues, of course, to go on in our own day, and he comes at the biblical answer from a theological vantage point. It's really a model for our own lives and a model for us as parents. He does not say, because I told you so. He does not argue that sexual sin is to be avoided because of the physical and emotional turmoil that will result, though that certainly is valid. He says, it just doesn't line up with who you are. You are a holy temple the very dwelling place of God's Holy Spirit. Therefore, this kind of sin is unthinkable and unimaginable. So flee sexual immorality and glorify God with your body because you belong to him. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that uh, when you save us, your salvation is complete that all aspects of our being become new creations and that you tell us that we 
in fact, are a holy temple because the Spirit of God dwells within us. What a phenomenal idea and one that we've certainly not plumbed the depths of this morning. But I pray that when we do face temptation of whatever nature, that we would be reminded that we are a holy temple because the Spirit dwells within us. And therefore, the sins that we've talked about this morning are simply unthinkable, unimaginable. At the same time, I thank you that those who have committed such sins can find forgiveness in you. That no sin is too great that Jesus' blood can't pay for it. And so we thank you not only for calling us a holy temple, but for giving us when we fail to live like it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing and you respond.